Hip hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip hop story. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip hop. The AJC's trusted veteran political voices, Greg Bluestein, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and Bill Nygut are the essential source for Georgia politics. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution's Politically Georgia. Sign up for the newsletter, download the podcast, subscribe to the AJC. You're listening to the seventh season of Breakdown, an exclusive podcast of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution produced with our partners at WSB Radio. This season, Judgment Call. For more information, including photos, court records, and video, go to AJCBreakdown.com. Follow us on Twitter at AJC Courts and at ReporterJCB. Also, please join our Breakdown Facebook group to meet our journalists and ask questions about our story. Previously on Breakdown. The defense is going to want folks who would sympathize with Olson. No one's going to say this. They're going to want some white folks on that jury, right? They're going to want some people who tend to be more law enforcement oriented on that jury. Was he in fear enough of what this new man with no weapon was going to do to him? Was he in fear enough to take his life? That's the question. What kind of new, if he had a, a new gun, man if he was coming at him with a gun, he absolutely was just If he had a knife, absolutely, he knew he could harm him enough to kill him. Just thank God I'm not on the jury. Yeah, I know it, man. After four and a half years, the state versus Robert Chip Olson is finally underway. Unarmed, unclothed, and unable to harm. That's what the evidence will show Anthony Hill was on March 9, 2015. He was unarmed, he was unclothed, and he was unable to harm. This is the state versus Robert Olson. We have the burden of proving beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant committed each and every one of those crimes as charged in the Bill of Indictment. And ladies and gentlemen, we will do that. When you have heard all the evidence in this case, there's no doubt that you will conclude that Chip Olson is not guilty of murder. You may conclude that he reacted not in the best way. You may consider the fact that in the six or seven seconds he had to react to what he viewed as being imminent use of violence against him, that he could have done something else in hindsight. Monday morning quarterbacking, but you will not conclude that he is guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt. Welcome back to Breakdown, Season 7, Judgment Call. I'm Bill Rankin, legal affairs reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm Christian Boone, public safety reporter for the AJC. You just got a taste of opening statements as the trial got underway. You're going to hear a lot more about that later in this episode. But first, we want to catch you up on how we got here. There were some interesting last-minute developments before the trial. Just three days before jury selection began, the prosecution told the court it had offered Olson a deal, 
20 years, 15 to serve in prison, five on probation. That probably didn't sound like much of a deal to a 57-year-old man with a 9-year-old son. No, it does not. Lead prosecutor Pete Johnson disclosed the deal at the end of a pretrial hearing, and it shows you how confident the state must have been, offering a deal the defendant was almost certain to refuse. No surprise, he did. The state would soon have even more reasons to be feeling good about its case. Two important rulings by Judge Letitia Deer Jackson would eventually go their way. One dealt with DeKalb County's use of force policy. The state wants Olson, as a police officer, held to a higher standard. The defense wants him to be treated like any Georgian who believed he or she was about to be harmed. Georgia's stand-your-ground law allows citizens to use deadly force if they reasonably believe it's necessary to prevent death or great bodily harm. DeKalb's use of force policy requires a higher standard for its officers. It says deadly force will be used with great restraint as a last resort and only when the level of resistance warrants it. And it prohibits the use of deadly force to respond to an immediate threat to commit a forcible felony, a direct contradiction to state law, as the defense has argued. Another thing to keep in mind, Georgia is as gun-friendly as a state can be. In the 80s, one metro Atlanta city, Kennesaw, even passed a law requiring the head of each household to own a gun. Seriously. Then the defense filed what's called a motion in limine. That's a request to the judge to keep the jury from hearing certain testimony. In this case, it was Anthony Hill's background, including his military service and his mental health history. In their motion, the defense stated, quote, Whether Anthony Hill was a war hero, a Nobel Prize winner, or a sinister gang member was not known to Officer Olson, unquote. For this reason, the defense said, Hill's background was not relevant. Here's how it played out in court. What the jury is ultimately going to be asked to decide is what was Officer Olson's state of mind, not what was Anthony Hill's state of mind. So this information about, well, you know, really he had these mental health problems and it was because of his, you know, serving in the military and the fact that he went overseas. All that does is distract the jury and improperly influence their decision to be based on sympathy for Mr. Hill. That's Amanda Clark Palmer making the argument for the defense. In response, lead prosecutor Pete Johnson says the jury needs to know why Anthony Hill was behaving so strangely that day. He was actually medically retired, and the fact that he is uh, you know, a young man and was retired from the Air Force, we think instead of inviting speculation from the jury as to what it could be, it could be covered just by simply stating what the truth is. What, what is prejudicial about that fact? Uh, you know, other than the defense doesn't like it. The judge takes the matter under advisement over the weekend. Before jury selection on Monday, she announces her decision. I am going to allow testimony on a very limited scope. The state can ask its witnesses um, and elicit testimony that says that Mr. Hill had mental health issues, received a diagnosis, was medically retired from the Air Force, He was prescribed medications, and he was off his medications on the day um, of his death. So, we're off. More than 150 DeKalb County residents showed up for jury duty on September 23rd. If you remember from previous seasons of Breakdown, jury selection is one of the most revealing parts of the trial. People from all walks of life give their opinions on race, sex, police, and the criminal justice system. In my mind, it's been some of the most interesting audio we've been able to provide our listeners. 
Here's some audio from jury selection from season two, where Ross Harris was convicted of leaving his son Cooper in his hot car to die. As you can hear, emotions and opinions run the gamut. Here's one juror who broke down thinking she'd be out of work for the lengthy trial. Or this juror when asked about the graphic photos Harris texted to women. You took that to be pornography? Well, when you drop your drawers and take a picture of yourself and send it through the internet, yeah. And I'll never forget this juror from episode 8 in season 2. He said the Lord had given him a gift, the ability to read people's minds. Yes, not necessarily a brain thing, but I can spend time with somebody and see and hear, and, I, and of course the Lord's intervention also, mm-hmm. and tell things. If I tell that to a bunch of people, it kind of gets goofy quick. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Um, that is my calling life. Like criminal minds, if you look at criminal minds, yes, sir. these things, it's, I, I operate the same kind of thing, except it's from a spiritual side, and we go to help people get healed of it, mm-hmm. instead of letting them run off and kill people. That, that sounds pretty intense. It um, is. It's very intense. But in recent years, judges in Georgia have decided that we in the media cannot record what jurors say during voir dire. That means you, dear listener, can't hear one of the most interesting and important parts of this trial. And no, we're not happy about that. So you're stuck with us, and we were cranky. That first day of jury selection lasted 12 hours in a frigid courtroom. The AC was blasting. It felt at least 40 degrees cooler than it was outside. Not surprisingly, one of the courtroom deputies got sick and the judge herself caught a cold. Okay, enough complaining. Now back to the trial. What we learned right away is that a lot of the prospective jurors hadn't heard about the case. We were surprised by that until we remembered the shooting happened four years ago. There were some, however, who knew the basics, that a cop shot an unarmed, naked man. Almost all these prospective jurors had strong opinions about that. They believed Olson wasn't justified in shooting Hill. Here's one woman who's a fan of court TV shows and who had already heard about the case in the news. She said, quote, If someone has a weapon, they may be a threat. If someone is naked, that person has nothing. How are they a threat? It's commonly assumed that black jurors are highly skeptical of law enforcement and would side with the prosecution in a case like this. White jurors, on the other hand, would have a more favorable view of cops and be more likely to believe Olson's account. But this is DeKalb County, one of the most diverse and progressive counties in Georgia. The trial is being held in the county seat of Decatur, which is jokingly referred to as the People's Republic of Decatur. Take this white would-be juror, number 40. He's a former school teacher, an aspiring poet, and he gets his news from NPR. He supports Black Lives Matter, and he said his worldview is influenced by, quote, white liberal guilt, unquote. Juror 40 was aware of all the fatal shootings involving young, unarmed black men. Not exactly a pro-Olson juror, and he didn't make the cut. Juror number two did. She's a retired professor at Emory University School of Medicine. She's active in local politics. She attended one of the women's marches after Donald Trump was elected, and she listens to the liberal podcast, Pod Save America. She's also over 70 and could have exercised her right not to serve because of her age. But she said opting out would have been inconsistent with her values. During questioning, she said she thought police tend to intervene in the lives of people of color in a negative way, such as, quote, driving while black. 
She was joined on the jury by the daughter of a former policeman. She's a fan of CSI, like so many of the other jurors, and she gets her news from her grandma, not social media. She's a middle-aged black woman, originally from South Carolina, Anthony Hill's home state. But when asked about police, she said she doesn't think they single people out because of race. Four Deer is designed, in part, to detect bias among potential jurors by asking them pointed questions about their attitudes and beliefs. And in this case, the way police interact with black citizens often dominated the discussion. We also got our first real look at Judge Letitia Deer Jackson. You'll recall she had only been on the Superior Court bench for five weeks when this case landed in her lap. So how would she handle all this? Well, from what we've seen, she's incredibly pleasant, extremely punctual, and her control over the courtroom seems effortless. She greets everyone with a wide grin, and she doesn't have robitis, that air of superiority some judges take on once they put on that robe. She's unassuming, a quality I'd like to see in more judges. She doesn't appear to be intimidated by being at the center of a high-profile trial involving highly experienced lawyers. Dear Jackson is close to DeKalb's DA, Sherry Boston, but it became clear right off the bat that she didn't play favorites. When the prosecution made its first request to remove a prospective juror for cause, Dear Jackson sided with the defense. She kept the juror in the pool, and she did the same thing repeatedly during the three days of jury selection. Here's one example. Juror 52 is a paralegal at a Metro Atlanta law firm. She said she had strong feelings about law enforcement. A lot of times, police have to react in a split second, and we ask them to do almost the impossible, she said. Here's Buffy Thomas, a member of the prosecution team. She's the deputy chief assistant DA in a sprawling urban county who prosecutes violent crime. She won murder convictions in 2018 against two gangbangers, one of whom was nicknamed... Bad news. Satan, strike jury number 52 for cause. This is a juror that indicated not once but twice upon Satan's questioning and defense's questioning that she had strong opinions, not just opinions, but strong opinions about the way law enforcement um, is being treated. Defense attorney Don Samuel asked Dear Jackson to keep juror 52 in the pool. The question is, is the opinion so fixed and especially that Jackson agreed. As to juror number 52, I am going to deny the state's motion. As the process continued, it became clear that both sides were keeping tabs on the racial makeup of the jury. Responding to Prosecutor Pete Johnson's motion to excuse a white man who said he had plans to attend a funeral in South Georgia, Amanda Clark Palmer said accommodations could be made. She said she didn't want to sound heartless or unsympathetic, but it's not like they had a whole bunch of qualified jurors to begin with. Frankly, in thinking of the composition of our jury and and the desire for it to be balanced between gender and race and all of those things, um, the the four people that we're looking at who have these sort of travel hardships all happen to be, I think they're all white men or maybe he was a Hispanic male, so I'm keeping that in the back of my mind as well. Johnson's response? So? I don't see how this person is any different than others the defense has agreed to release for travel other than they, they like it. 
And so, um, you know, we're just trying to be, be fair. Dear Jackson declined to dismiss the prospective juror. Later, when the defense moved to strike a black woman from the jury pool, Johnson couldn't resist noting what the defense had been up to. The state's position is she is qualified as a juror. And, you know, I, I find it a little bit troubling when I hear an argument from the defense saying we shouldn't get rid of some of these jurors because they're white and or Hispanic, yet a lot of these strikes are against African-Americans. Yes. That was the judge trying to stop Johnson from going there. She then told the lawyers. It's duly noted, but I will say that I did not consider that, and that is not going into my consideration as to what any side's preference are of what they believe a jury makeup should be. Dear Jackson said if one side thinks the other side is moving to dismiss jurors along racial lines, they can argue that when jury selection is over, during what's known as a Batson challenge. The judge may have thought that was the end of the matter, but not when Pete Johnson's at the prosecution table. Here he is, minutes later, responding to a defense motion to dismiss another potential juror who was black. Uh, I didn't hear anything that she had a fixed opinion about how this should turn out or a bias against the defendant because he's a police officer or bias for the state because of the fact that, you know, we're trying to seek a conviction against this defendant. Um, she said at one time, I feel like I'm on trial, and I'm being asked the same questions again. Um, so I would uh, oppose the strike for cause on 42, who I know the court doesn't take this into account, but for the record, is another African American. And remember when we said that you never know what people are going to say during jury selection? Under questioning by the lawyers, Juror 38, a pastor who was born in Ghana, said he hadn't eaten a thing for almost a week. The reason? He'd found out his wife of 20 years had been sleeping with another man. He told the court he was far too distracted and brokenhearted to concentrate on a murder trial. The judge agreed. He was dismissed. This is Breakdown. Our journalists at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution are working around the clock to keep you updated on all the developments surrounding the Trump indictment. Now the AJC is putting all of our coverage in one place with our new Trump 19 newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That's all one word. AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. So after three days, we have a jury. Seven women, five men, five white, five black, one Hispanic, one Asian. There's a white man who owns a construction company who said a black friend of his was wrongly convicted of rape in Florida and later exonerated by DNA evidence. He said it opened his eyes to racial bias in the criminal justice system. There's a Bernie Sanders supporter who owns a Glock 9 pistol and plays ultimate frisbee. Another is a longtime school teacher who loves TV crime shows. She thinks desperate housewife Felicity Huffman got off too easy in the college admissions scandal. And there's a Jamaican-born forklift operator with a new baby at home and a recent college grad who lives at home with his mom. But even before the final jury was picked, there was widespread agreement on this. Advantage, prosecution. From what I've seen so far, I would not necessarily call this the best defense panel on these facts that I've seen in quite some time. I think there are a lot of issues in this case that are very difficult and delicate to deal with from both sides. And so far, the answers that have been given 
have been none too flattering toward the defense. So far, it seems like there are a greater number of folks that the state would be tickled to have uh, sitting in the jury box. That's Jeff Brickman, the former DeKalb DA, who was in the courtroom for much of jury selection. So now the jury is seated and the trial begins in earnest. First up, with an opening statement from the state, is Buffy Thomas. She let off with what seemed to be a debatable premise. Unarmed, unclothed, and unable to harm. That's what the evidence will show Anthony Hill was on March 9, 2015. He was unarmed, he was unclothed, and he was unable to harm. Unarmed, unclothed, no doubt. Unable to harm, who knows? Thomas took her time telling the jury about Anthony Hill. Anthony was from Monk's Corner, South Carolina. He was 26 years old on March 9, 2015. He was the son of Anthony Hill and Carolyn Jumo, brother to Tamara Jumo. He joined the United States Air Force in 2008 and he served for five years. He was diagnosed with bipolar disorder and PTSD while serving. You'll learn that he was medically retired from the Air Force due to his mental illness, that he loved music, and that he moved to Atlanta after he was medically retired to pursue a career in music. I'll search high and low till I find you, girl. I'm 23 years old. I need a lady in my world. You will hear that Anthony was 5 feet 9 inches tall, and he weighed approximately 165 pounds. And while it's not on the slide, he also loved to exercise. He was athletic. Thomas also said that even though Hill was having a manic episode on the day he died, no one at the complex was afraid of him. I expect that the witnesses will tell you that he wasn't aggressive. There was no fear there. There was concern. Thomas described Hill's erratic behavior and what led apartment manager Grizel Torres to call 911. And you'll also see video. And you'll see the video of Anthony walking around the apartment complex totally nude. He's not being aggressive. He's walking around. He's crawling around. He's, he's hanging from balconies. He's hanging on railings. He goes to the playground where the children play. There are no children on the playground at 1 o'clock in the afternoon in March. The children are in school. But he's crawling around on the ground on the playground, and one of the witnesses, I expect, will describe it as him being in a military-style pose, like he was at war, like a soldier crawling on the ground. Again, completely naked. So the men, the maintenance men, they go out, they talk to him, they try to convince him to go inside of his apartment, they tell him that the police have been called, you cannot walk around naked. The police have been called, they're coming. Anthony says, good. The police are my friends. And he walks off. Enter Chip Olson, responding to the 911 call, the first officer on the scene. The prosecution contends that Olson did not come in blind. So when the defendant responds, the evidence will show that he knew the situation that he was responding to. He also knew that backup had been dispatched. Thomas tells the jury they will be hearing from three important eyewitnesses. The witnesses say, all three of them, that when the officer pulls in to that parking lot, Anthony jumps up, 
and he starts running. Running, not sprinting, running toward the officer. Not aggressive, not charging. I believe Miguel Medina will describe it as running like un baracho, which is a Spanish person, a drunk person in Spanish. Clumsy, a clumsy run. A friendly run toward the officer. They will tell you that the officer got out of his car, pulled his gun, and shouted, stop, two to three times. And that Anthony did not stop, but he slowed down. The run slowed down. And he never got a chance to stop, because when the officer shouted, stop, stop, twice, he shot him. Twice. He was stark naked. He had no clothes on, nowhere to hide a weapon, no weapon in his hand. He never uttered a word as he's running toward the officer. Up to this point, defendant Chip Olson has sat sphinx-like in his chair at the defense table. Occasionally, he talks to his lawyers, but for the most part, he continually sits stock still, leaning slightly forward, staring straight ahead, rarely making eye contact with anyone. But as Buffy Thomas describes Hill's final moments, Olson begins wiping away tears, the first time we can recall him showing any emotion. Now, the evidence is not going to show that Anthony ever attacked him, touched him, came close enough to touch him, put his hands on him, threatened him, or anything like that. But he tells dispatch moments after he shoots Anthony that Anthony attacked him. And that's important. I want y'all to remember that, too. Thomas told jurors they would hear a recorded interview Olson gave to two GBI agents one week after the shooting. She said what Olson didn't say was just as important as what he did. He never tells them that he was scared of Anthony Hill. He never says he tried to attack me. He never says he threatened me. He never says he tried to take my weapon. He never says I thought he was going to take my weapon. He never says that he feared for his safety. He never said he feared for his life. Not once did the words fear, afraid, scared, attack, threaten, pass this man's lips. Thomas said there was something else Olson never mentioned. And you know what else you're not going to hear, ladies and gentlemen, during that interview? Never once does he refer to Anthony by name. And surely at that time he, he knew who he was. He may not have known who he was when he shot him, but he knew a week later who he was. He never calls him by his name. He never even refers to him as a human being. Don't take my word for it. He refers to Anthony, but not as a human being and not by his name. You'll hear it. What you'll also hear, and I'm going to say this and then I'm going to sit down, is him describe Anthony's naked body. Don't talk about being scared. But he talks about this, this naked man's body. He talks about his bulging quadricep muscles, and that's what he saw. Bulging quadricep muscles? Well, that's kind of weird. So why did Olson shoot? If he wasn't in fear for his safety, what was the reason? Near the end of her opening statement, Thomas offered a peculiar rationale that no one saw coming. He was uncomfortable. And uncomfortable does not equal afraid. You will not hear in this courtroom at any point in time during this trial that you are justified in using 
force likely to cause death or great bodily harm because you are uncomfortable. He wasn't afraid. He was uncomfortable with this naked man running at him. That's what he was. And because he was uncomfortable, his actions in using deadly force were unnecessary. Not only were they unnecessary, they were unreasonable, and they were unjustified. And unfortunately, they cannot be undone. And ladies and gentlemen, why y'all cannot undo what the defendant did on March 9, 2015, y'all can certainly hold him accountable by finding him guilty of each and every count in the Bill of Indictment. Thank you. You heard that, right? She said Olson was uncomfortable with Hill's nudity, so he shot and killed him. That's what she said. And it left us wondering, how would the state prove that? Thomas's conclusion overshadowed what had been a dispassionate, thorough distillation of the state's case. She was immediately followed by lead defense attorney Don Samuel. And as you'll hear, his opening statement was spirited, confident, and unequivocal. When you have heard all the evidence in this case, there's no doubt that you will conclude that Chip Olson is not guilty of murder. You may conclude that he reacted not in the best way. You may consider the fact that in the six or seven seconds he had to react to what he viewed as being imminent use of violence against him, that he could have done something else. In hindsight, Monday morning quarterbacking. But you will not conclude that he is guilty of murder beyond a reasonable doubt. This case boils down to all of about six or seven seconds that Chip Olson had to react to what any person would view as being imminent use of violence or force against him. How does a human being react in six or seven seconds, whether you are a lawyer or a policeman or a soldier, mother, father, judge, how do you react when you have six or seven seconds and someone is running at you? No one really knows how many seconds Olson had to react. It may have been more. It may have been fewer. But Samuel would repeat that, six or seven seconds, at least ten times during his opening. He also said there are very few disputed facts, except for the biggest one of all, whether Olson was attacked. As the prosecutor said, we know who Anthony Hill is now. Of course, Chip Olson had no idea, no idea who Anthony Hill was when he was summoned to the apartment complex by three urgent 911 calls. He didn't even know that he lived at the apartment complex. He didn't know that he was a resident there. All he knew was that the 911 dispatcher said that the, the woman in the leasing office said, please send the police, hurry. And he responded as patrolman would to that request for urgent assistance. Samuel told jurors that Olson was 52 at the time of the shooting. He'd been on the force for seven years. He'd never fired his handgun except at the range, never used his pepper spray or his baton. The only time he used his taser, it didn't work. 
and Olson never had an excessive use of force complaint filed against him. Remember when we told you how many prospective jurors believed police didn't treat people of color the same as they treat whites? Samuel apparently didn't forget it either. You are not here in this courtroom as advocates of a cause. You are not here to espouse your ideology. You are only here to decide the facts of this case. And whether you believe in lock her up or believe in Black Lives Matter or Me Too, whatever your political ideology is, today we are here to decide one case, this case, and what happened on March 9th in 2015. This is Breakdown. I'm Ernie Suggs. And I'm Ned Ravone. Atlanta has been known as the Black Mecca for so many years, but that means something different to everybody. It means everything to me. Every day I wake up, I learn something new. Well, you all can learn something new by subscribing to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution's new newsletter called Unapologetically ATL. It's all about the people, the events, and the entertainment happening in Metro Atlanta that Black people might want to know about. So subscribe today at www.ajc.com slash unapologetically ATL. In her opening, Thomas talked about how Olson had enough information without having to introduce lethal force into the situation right away. None of the witnesses at the scene said they felt threatened by Hill. Samuel painted a different picture. The dispatcher is telling Chip Olson, demented person, naked, people locking themselves in the apartment complex. And they are scared, the people in the leasing office. They are scared. And that's why they locked themselves in so he couldn't get in. So the question is, were they really scared or just uncomfortable? Samuel continues. And this case is about what's going through Chip Olson's mind when he arrives there. That's what this case is about. All he's told is demented person at an apartment complex, people locking themselves in the office. Think about what's going through Chip Olson's mind when that's the information he receives. Call number two. Request PD to hurry. Okay? Regardless of what's going through Mr. Echeverria's mind or what's going through Mr. Castillo's mind or what's going through Giselle Torres's mind and the leasing officer, this is what's going through Chip Olson's mind. This is what he's being told by the dispatcher. Hurry. And then finally the third call. The male has removed all his clothing. The complainant advises the male has removed all of his clothing. When Chip Olson arrives at the scene, arrives at the Shambly Apartments, this is all he knows. He does not know Anthony Hill's name. He does not know that he's a veteran. He does not know that he suffers from PTSD. He does not know that he's bipolar. He has no idea. In fact, the people in the apartment, in the leasing office leasing office don't even know that. They think maybe he's on drugs, that he's been using methamphetamine. So he's, he's basically, the car is going, whatever, one mile an hour, basically comes to a stop. And he's waiting for backup. He doesn't have his siren on, doesn't have his blue lights on, because he's trying to keep the situation calm. And he wants to wait for backup to see what can be done. He doesn't yell at Mr. Hill. 
He doesn't give him orders. He doesn't scream at him, get down, put your hands behind your back, nothing like that. He doesn't know anything about Anthony Hill. Doesn't know anything about his mental health condition. He doesn't even know that he lives there. As far as he knows, this is an intruder who is scaring the people in the apartment complex, the children who live there, the, out on the playground you'll see. That's what Chip Olson knows. And he's in his car. And this, this man, this naked man, comes running at him. Now, everybody says, well, he's naked. I just want you to think for a second how frightening that must be and how frightening it was for Chip Olson. Okay, they make, make light of it. Oh, he's just naked. Chip Olsen was scared to death. He, here he's been summoned in a hurry. Get there. The people are scared. They're locked themselves in the, in the apartment complex. He gets out of his car, and this man is running at him, naked. And he pulls out his gun. He's a lefty, actually. He pulls out the gun with his left hand, and he points. And he yells, stop, stop! And he doesn't stop. He doesn't even slow down at that point, Mr. Hill. He just keeps running. Attacking, charging, sprinting, whatever you want to call it. He's still coming at Chip Olson. Samuel then tells jurors what Olson did next. Something Thomas didn't say. Chip Olson starts backing up. He's backing up. Stop, stop! And he doesn't stop. He doesn't stop. There will be a lot of conflicting testimony about what a cop should do when confronted in a situation like this. A state's witness, Samuel said, will say Olson should have just stayed in his car. The answer is that's not what policemen do. When you get summoned to a scene of a, you know, a, a, where people are crying out for help and asking you to hurry, you don't lock yourself in your car. That's not what policemen do. Maybe that's what we would do. I'd probably get in my car and drive away. But I'm not a policeman. He's there to help. The, the saying among policemen is, when there's a fire, you run to the fire. Everybody else is running away from the fire. A policeman's job isn't to lock himself in a car. So he gets out of the car because that's what a policeman is expected to do. He gets out of his car to address the danger that he's been summoned to address. As I said to you before, six or seven seconds is what we're dealing with here. Samuel tells jurors that Olson's decision to pull out his pistol right away was a de-escalation tactic. Prosecutors and experts certainly disagree with that. But Samuel said Olson did it to try to bring the situation under control. And that's exactly what Chip Olson was doing. He didn't pull out his gun in order to shoot. He pulled out his gun in order to stop Anthony Hill from running at him. That's why he pulls the gun out. He doesn't pull it out and shoot. He pulls it out, and what does he do? He yells, stop, stop, loud enough for everybody in the apartment complex to hear him. And then he starts backing up. That's, he pulls the gun in order to stop him from attacking, running, provoking, charging whatever verb you want to use. That's why the gun is pulled out. Not to shoot, but it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And this man, who he knows nothing about, continues to run towards him. It's not correct what the prosecutor says. He didn't even have time to stop. That's nonsense, you'll hear. 
he doesn't stop, and when he's, just, again, two to three feet away from his arm, he shoots. We know he's two to three feet away because Mr. Hill's blood ends up on Chip Olson. That's how close they were. Samuel finished by acknowledging what Olson didn't know, that Anthony Hill was a good man, full of potential, who deserved better. Before I sit down, I want to say something about Anthony Hill. Even though Chip Olson didn't know anything about him that day, we do know quite a bit about him now. He was a very fine man. Nobody at our side is going to say anything other than that. He was loved by his mother. He loved his mother. He had a fiance. He had a roommate. Um, he'd never, as far as we know, ever hurt anybody. Okay? Don't think anybody at our table thinks otherwise, or that Chip Olson thinks otherwise. But that's not what we're here today to decide. <coughs> What we are here to decide here is whether Chip Olson acted reasonably. So you may say, when this trial is over, I wish you had done something different. You may say he used bad judgment. You may say maybe he should, be, should have been a desk officer. But one thing you really will not be entitled to say <clears throat> is that Chip Olson's a murderer, because he's not. Next, on Breakdown. From what you observed, did the officer have to shoot Anthony to stop him? Yes. Why? Because he was running towards him. I'm Bill Rankin. I'm Christian Boone. Thanks for joining us again on Breakdown. You've been listening to Breakdown. Reported and narrated by Bill Rankin and Christian Boone. Produced by Shannon McCaffrey. Edited by Richard Hallex. Sound designed by Shane Backler at WSB Radio. Original music composed and recorded by Bo Emerson and Anthony Hill. Special thanks to Kevin Riley, Monica Richardson, Sean McIntosh, Brad Schrade, Pete Corson, Pete Spriggs, Chris Camp, Veronica Waters, and all the great people at the AJC. Please rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite download app. We also invite you to listen to the previous six seasons of Breakdown. And of course, thanks so very much for listening.